As you're taking your seat, you can grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air, and they'll make sure a Bible makes its way across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, then just keep this one. This is our gift to you today. We, we pray that it would bless you. Pray that God would speak to you through his word as he promises to do, that his word would not return void and would accomplish everything he has purposed for it to accomplish. We're praying for that today, and uh, I want to let you know that as we kind of dive into our text in Genesis 14, that uh, I recently, in the last few weeks, finished rereading for the, I can't, I don't know how many times, the, the, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, and, um, and that just means this, you're going to get a whole lot of Bible today and a, a little bit of Lord of the Rings sprinkled in, okay? It's just preparing you in advance. In fact, I wanted to let you know that J.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings, um, his writing was greatly influenced in many ways by his experience of going to war, Many of you may not know, but both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis fought in World War I. And in World War I, uh, Tolkien actually fought uh, for Britain in the Battle of the Somme. That was a devastating battle for the British where countless lives were lost, including some of Tolkien's closest friends. What he saw in the war would end up reinforcing what he saw and believed to be true in the Bible. Namely, that the human condition was bent towards sin and evil, and there was in the human nature, the fallen human nature, a bent of the will towards power and control. He would also see in war, as well as in Scripture, that there was a need for courage among ordinary men. And in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, we're introduced very quickly to two key figures, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. They are hobbits who live in the Shire. And if none of this makes sense to you, go watch the movies this afternoon. Maybe make that a, actually, they're long. It's going to take you more than this afternoon. But they live in this place called the Shire. They're small little people with giant hairy feet. And as we're introduced to them, we're brought into a journey that they are sent on, a fateful mission to destroy the last ring of power and to save Middle Earth from enslavement and destruction. It's interesting that Tolkien actually began to form his ideas about Middle Earth as he sat in the trenches fighting World War I. And the heroism of Tolkien's characters depends on their capacity to resist evil and their tenacity and courage in the face of both evil and impending defeat. It was this quality that Tolkien witnessed among his friends and his comrades on the Western Front in World War I. In fact, he wrote these words in light of this. He said this, he said, I have always been impressed that we are here surviving because of the indomitable courage of quite small people against impossible odds. He actually went on to explain that the hobbits were a reflection, he says, of the English soldier made small of stature to emphasize the amazing and unexpected heroism of ordinary men in a pitch. 
In many ways, I think that we can extend this imagery of the hobbit beyond the the British soldier and actually to the Christian soldier. You see, by the world's estimations, Christians are small in stature, but we are chosen by God to live with courageous faith as we venture out our doors every day into this world on a, in a, into a spiritual war on a rescue mission on behalf of our commander-in-chief, King Jesus. We actually see this imagery displayed in Genesis chapter 14 in the life of Abram. And in this chapter, he enters out into a world war. And he serves as a model for us, and he points us essentially and ultimately to our commander-in-chief, to Jesus Christ. Abram has here demonstrated for us a complete turnaround. All the way back in chapter 12, we saw Abram who was called out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans by Yahweh God. God makes to him a promise that he's going to give him a land, offspring, and ultimately through this offspring, this land will come, and so too will blessings to the nations of the world. We see that there is faith that is birthed in the heart of Abram as he follows God. He, He leaves everything that's comfortable and convenient behind, and he marches toward the land of promise. But almost instantly we read of his fickle or feeble faith. He has this failure of faith as he goes down into Egypt. And we see him there as this duplicitous, a cowardly husband who's ruled not by faith, but by fear. Then God leads him back up again out of Egypt towards the promised land again where we see him renewing his faith. We saw that last week where he is unshackled from his past failure to a decisive in this chapter, listen, a decisive and courageous warrior. And this passage teaches us in many ways, listen, that we too must have a courageous faith like Abram. And we need that for a variety of reasons. We must have courageous faith, first, because we live in a ruthless world. A ruthless world that actually requires not a timid faith or a trepid faith, but a courageous faith. I want to begin in verse 1 of chapter 14, it's going to set the context for us. It says, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shember, Shemer, a king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedor Laomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shabakirathaim, and the 
and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. You can stop there. We're getting a bit of the the context here and it's important for what is about to follow. All you need to see here is that this is truly a ruthless world. The ancient world was not an easy place to live. Trouble comes to the land in the form of a military conflict here. There's this coalition of four kings from the area of of ancient Mesopotamia, and what they're doing is they're seeking to reassert dominance and control over the area, specifically around the Dead Sea. So it's these four kings against these five kings, four kings from Mesopotamia against five kings in the region of the Dead Sea. Now, it's important to understand, when we think of kings, I I think we have this kind of glorified imagery of what these kings must have looked like. What you need to see is that these, in the ancient world, these men in particular are simply thugs. These are not just kings, they're not righteous kings, they're not looking out for the good of their citizens in any way, shape, or form. These are warlords. They're clan leaders, they're ancient chieftains, they're pirates who go raiding and plundering. And they are at this time, listen, make no mistake about it, they are the lords of the world at this time. And they run around raiding and plundering, they strike fear into all the inhabitants surrounding them, and there's these four who have subjugated these other five. And you'll notice the text tells us that these these five kings and and all of their subjects in these quasi-kingdoms, they served for 12 years. These kings were exacting from these, these other vassal states all of their wealth, all of their products and produce. They're bleeding them dry so that the people, listen, they, they, they get to this place where they're like, listen, we've been doing this for 12 years. I mean, this is horrific. This is no way to live our lives. In fact, it's so bad. It's so awful. It's better to go fight to the death than to deal with this for one more year. And so in the 13th year, they rebel and they go to battle. World War, zero. I don't know what you'd call that. And we're getting the lay of the land here, the way of the world. It's a ruthless, power-hungry, oppressive, and dangerous place. And while it's a little tamer, at least in our part of the world today, 
I think we can often relate to what we see here. Verse 10 through 12, we hear about the battle, and it's, it's not much. We don't get much of a glimpse. We just know this, that these five kings who have tried to rebel against their overlords, they don't win. And they're, they're sent running. And here's what you need to see in this, okay? The, the kings flee. So what we're getting this, this picture of is this, that here's these kings of these little kingdoms who want to fight back, but what we find out is this, that these are cowardly men. They care more about their own lives than they, they do about the cause. They care more about their own preservation than they do about the people they've rallied to fight alongside them. They're willing to cast them to the curb, kick them to the curb, and let them spill their blood while they head for the hills to save their own lives. And in one sense, some of them, they get what they deserve. They fall into these, these pits of bitumen, these asphalt pits. It's interesting, um, there, there's this first quote from Lord of the Rings coming right here. But there's this dwarf, right, some of you know, named Gimli. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is good, okay? This is good. This is official. Gimli, son of Gloin. I want to make sure you don't get him confused with other Gimlis. He says this. He says, faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. And you know what? That's exactly what we see in this picture. These men have no faith. They're not faithful men, not, not to God or the people that they, they, they say they're leading and serving. They care only about themselves. These guys are cowards. And, and listen, this is intended to set up a natural contrast in the text between these kings and what's going to happen in the next scene with Abram, who will not be a coward, who will look fear in the eyes this time, and who will go and fight and rescue his nephew. And it's his nephew here, we're told, Lot, who has been captured. This is what is going to precipitate Abram's involvement. At this point in time, he's been left alone. He's been left out of the battle, and, and maybe for good reason, as we'll find out. But he's going to be drawn into the battle. I, I just want you to notice, before we get to what Abram does, I want you to notice what the text tells us about Lot. Remember before, in the earlier chapters, we, we read about Lot Lot chose the land, and remember how he chose it. He looked out and he saw it with his eyes. He was led not by faith but by sight. He looks at the good land in front of him. He looks towards Sodom, and he says, I will go there. And the text gives us this little warning. This is where the wicked men of Sodom live. Now I want you to look down here at the Word of God for a moment, and I want you to notice what it says in verse 12. Okay, so before he was on the fringes of Sodom and Gomorrah, look at this. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was, look at this word, dwelling in Sodom. It's really interesting. At this point in, in Lot's life, he's not repelled by Sodom. He's not sickened by their, their sin and their wickedness. He's actually seemingly drawn to it. He's living now among them, and so he's carried off captive when they get defeated. And I just think there's a, there's a really, really important, it's, it's an 
ever so subtle warning here for us. Listen, the world is a dangerous place physically and spiritually. And we are in a spiritual war, but listen, listen, if you immerse yourself in the world, don't be surprised when you're taken captive by it. Don't be surprised. If you you immerse yourself in this world, don't be surprised when you're taken captive by it. Don't be surprised when you're enslaved by it. Don't be surprised when it wreaks havoc upon your life and it breeds destruction in your life. And I mean that, listen, uh, the, the New Testament wants us to take this principle of war, physical war that we see taking place in the Old Testament so frequently, and here's how it translate this, translate this, this into the Christian life. We are living, Christians, listen, in a spiritual war field. We are in a spiritual battle. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are engaged, Christians, in a spiritual war. The New Testament doesn't allow us to get away from this idea that we are to consider ourselves as Christian soldiers. In fact, you may be asked, well, how then if we don't, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we're in this war, well, how then do we fight? Paul will go on in Ephesians to describe how we are to put on the armor of God. And I want you to notice the primary weapon that he tells us we wield in this battle is the sword of truth. And this corresponds to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Notice what he says. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, this is awesome, have divine power to destroy strongholds. You say, what are these strongholds that we are destroying? Well, notice it's words, it's arguments, it's ideas. This is the primary weaponry of the enemy. Listen, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is such an important little nugget to take out of here, Christian. The biggest threat you face in this lifetime is not physical, it's ideological. That's what the Word of God is telling us. So much of the New Testament is a warning against false teachers of quarreling over controversies and myths. So much of of the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written to the pastors of local churches, they warn against the dangers of false doctrine. One of the primary qualifications of an elder is that they're able to teach sound doctrine and able to refute those who contradict. Why? Why? Because this is the battle. There's a battle for your mind going on every single day, every single day. And listen, this is the crazy part. Not just when you step out of your front door, in your own house. The ideas are being pumped at us from television sets and devices. 
And all we're getting, listen, wake up, right? Wake up to this reality. All we're getting is messaging from the world. It's really subtle, but here's what's happening. It's undermining, it's undermining the gospel message. It's undermining the morals and ethics of scripture. It's trying to dismantle the truth. And you say, how do we fight it? We take what we hear in this world, every opinion, every argument, everything that's raised against the knowledge of God, and we take the sword of the word of God, by the Spirit of God, and we, we, we hack that to death. We hack it to pieces. We cut it apart, and we discern through the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is approved and therefore pleasing to God, and what is disapproved and therefore what is displeasing to God. That's what we do as Christians. You need to fill your mind with the truth of God's word. Listen, you hear this all the time at this church, and maybe for some of us, we're like, I know, you're always telling us, read your Bible, meditate on the scriptures, memorize the scriptures. Can I, can I just, I'm, I'm, not, listen, I'm not telling you that every week because it's optional for the Christian life. It's essential for the Christian life. It's essential for Christian living. You will not survive in this world without it. You will be swayed. Listen, you will be swayed away from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And and, and that's what God wants for you. He wants you to be so saturated with the truth, so immersed in the truth. Listen, that you want nothing to do with dwelling in Sodom. You want to dwell in the presence of God. You want to dwell on his holy hill. You need the word of God to test and approve what is right so that you're not conformed right to this world any longer, but you're transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may obey God wherever he may lead you. Church, we must have courageous faith as we live in a ruthless world. Listen. Satan feels no ways about deceiving you any way he can. Do not give him a foothold in your life by being ignorant to the truth of God's word. We need courageous faith because we live in a ruthless world. Secondly, because we're on a rescue mission. And this mission is going to require, again, not, not some timid faith, not, not feeble faith, a, a courageous faith, a strong faith. It's really interesting what happens here. Abram gets word, notice this, of, of Lot's capture. It says, then when one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, by the way, this is the first mention of the word Hebrew in the Old Testament, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. Just notice, Abram's no fool. He lives in a dangerous world. He's made allies for the purpose of protecting himself and his family and all that belongs to him. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. 
he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Lot's about to orchestrate and execute a rescue operation that is worthy of the Navy SEALs. And obviously, he's a very capable man. We see here that that he's got a a trained army of 318 men. And by the way, that's all he takes with him. Certainly, he left some back to protect his, you know, the families and the flocks and the herds and all of, of that. What you need to see here is that Abram at this point has a very big operation going. He is a capable man. He is thriving in many ways. He has made allies. But right now, his faith is going to be tested in a unique way. Once he gets message of Lot's capture, he needs to respond. Commentator Ian Duguide, he he says this. He says that the veil is lifted for a moment and we see Abram in his true colors acting as the king of the land that is his by right and that will be inherited by his offspring. Remember, all of that, what's taking place here, it falls under that umbrella promise that God had made in Genesis chapter 12. And in particular, it has in sight the land promise. And so Abram here, he's going to take this massive risk, but here's what's really crazy about what he does. He does it for a guy that doesn't deserve it. I mean, at this point, we, we know what's happened in the story. Lot had made his decision, and Abram had made his. They went their separate ways. And at this point, it would have been right, it would have been fair, it would have been reasonable for Lot to simply say, Lot, you chose your lot. That was the ancient Hebrew way of saying you made your bed. I'm just kidding, I made that up, but it would have been a good one for sure. You made your decision, Lot. What do you think would happen, Lot, if... What do you think would happen if you chose to live in the midst of this wickedness and evil? I I, I just wonder if we just sit in this for just a moment. I wonder how often we look at the world, we see people living in sin. And and one of the things we're inclined to do is, is look down our nose at them and say, Well, you chose your lot. You made your bed. And we turn our back on them because we think they're just simply getting what they deserve. And I can't help but think, listen, as you think about the gospel today, aren't you thankful that God didn't give you what you deserve? Aren't you thankful that when God saw you, listen, when you chose to turn away from him, when you chose to live in sin, when you chose, even, listen, some of us, we do this all the time, when you knowingly chose to rebel against God and his grace, aren't you so thankful God didn't say, well, now you've gone and done it, good luck. But what we see here is so powerful. We see here that courageous faith, listen, is filled with mercy and love. It's filled with mercy and love, and and the selfish fleeing of worldly kings is held in contrast to the selfless faith 
of heaven's heroes. Interestingly, in the Lord of the Rings, you knew that was coming. There is also a a man who is the rightful king of the land, but is not ruling and reigning yet over his kingdom. His name is Aragorn. And, And he says this, in light of the battle that they're going to face, I'll put it again on the screen. Again, so you're not confused, it's Aragorn, son of Arathorn. He says, a day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. And, I, and I, listen, and for Abram, it is not this day. And listen, Christian, as you look out of the world who is in desperate need of rescue, listen, it is not this day. That day is the day Jesus returns, as we read in Psalm 110, verse 5, and shatters the kings of the earth. But until that day comes, we operate with a courageous faith because God has sent us out on a rescue mission for the world. And that's exactly what he does. Verses 14 through 16, he, he goes by night and he takes his force of 318 trained men. He's ready to fight and defend. He takes great risk. He ventures out and he rescues Lot. And what's really interesting, listen, many commentators actually draw attention to this event and some later events that happen in the life of the nation of Israel with particular figures. Um, this idea of, of a rescue mission uh, with, with these, this kind of number of 300 men. I want you, maybe some of you are thinking right now, and that's good, because these patterns develop throughout the Scripture. Think of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon, in, in the time of the Judges, uh, he's out there. There's, there's war going on. The enemies are raging against Israel, and God is going to raise up Gideon as a judge. And what does he do? He actually sends an angel of the Lord to speak to Gideon. Gideon is, is on his threshing floor, and the, the, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Oh, mighty men of, man of valor. Now listen, that's sarcasm. He's mocking Gideon because Gideon's hiding from the battle. And what God does is he takes Gideon and he's going to raise him up as this military leader and he's going to go and defend the people of God. But, but the, he calls Gideon to first gra- gather a group of men. Remember how, how he starts out? 20,000 men. And then God goes, that's too many. So he starts whittling down the number and guess what number he comes to? 300. Now interestingly... When Gideon rescues the people of God, he's going to take the spoils of the war. We're going to see what Abram does in a moment, but he's going to take the spoils of the war, and guess what he does? He makes an ephod, and he leads the people of God into idolatry. There's another event that takes place later on in the Scriptures in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and it's with David. Now, listen, David is the one who wrote Psalm 110, the psalm that Mark read for us at the beginning. And I think David is thinking about these events as he's processing his own life. Because there's this event in David's life where he's out uh, going to battle, and and his people and his possessions, his wives and all of his, his, his soldiers' wives and possessions are in this 
place called Ziklag. And, and when they come back, they found out that they have been raided and everything has been carried off. And David takes 600 men and he goes after them to get them back. But he has to whittle that down because 200 of the men are too tired to go on. They're so defeated. They're so tired from already fighting for a long period of time. So David takes 400 men. He goes back and he takes back all of his wives and all of his possessions. And then he distributes to everybody who participated. You see, what's the point of these kind of events? Why, why are these kind of events signaled out in Scripture? I think it's because the mission seems impossible. The mission seems humanly impossible. It, it's, it's against all odds. And, and in the Lord of the Rings... Listen, there's this situation where Boromir, remember Boromir? Some of you do. He, he doubts all the time. He doesn't think they're going to accomplish the mission. And when he hears about what they're actually going to do, listen to what he says. He said this. Some of you have seen this meme, right? One does not simply walk into Mordor. But listen to what he says. He says, its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. But that's just it, isn't it? I mean, that is, that is, that's the whole point. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish, Paul says, the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through its wisdom. But it pleased God. Listen, this is so good, Christian. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness, listen to this, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's our hope. That's what gives us courage. God, God loves to work in ways that seem utterly impossible. And here Abram is facing rescuing captives and, and setting them free. I just, can, can you not see the, the, the clear parallels 
between Abram and Jesus, between what he did and what Jesus Christ, King of Kings, has done. The enemy has taken Christ's dominion. That's the world that we live in. This is Jesus' world, listen church, where Jesus will one day rule and reign. And the enemy has taken captive people who belong to King Jesus. And our king, he left the comfort and convenience of his home and at great personal cost He went out to battle to rescue a people who do not deserve it. And he, against all odds, was victorious through the cross. One man against the world. That's that's the gospel. One man against all the forces of hell. He came from heaven to earth and he came for us. Why? Why? One word, love. And he is relentless in his pursuit of all who belong to him. And if you are, listen, if you are here today and you're an unbeliever, I wonder if you can see the ways that God has been relentlessly pursuing you, how he's been coming after you. Charles Spurgeon called God the heavenly hound. He won't lose one. We read this in John 6. All he calls to himself, all he draws to himself, they come and he comes running after his people. He will leave the 99 and run after the one. God loves to rescue people. He wants to rescue you today. If you, haven't, if you haven't seen how God is running after you, I wonder if you can see it today and see that God is wanting to rescue you from your captivity. He wants to rescue you from enslavement to sin and the power of death. He wants to liberate you. He has come to set you free because who the Son sets free is free indeed. Paul in Ephesians 4, he uses this military imagery of of, uh, the the Lord ascending on high and leading a host uh, out of captivity. I like the old King James. It says he takes captivity captive. Jesus conquers the grave and he gives gifts flowing from his victory. But these gifts, listen, from our mighty king, they're not physical gifts, they're spiritual gifts. And with these spiritual gifts and armed with spiritual weapons, our commander-in-chief, he sends us out on this, into this ruthless world on a rescue mission and nothing can stop him. This is why we can have courageous faith. Nothing can stand against his power. Colossians 2.15 says that through the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. He set them to open shame. He triumphed over them in Jesus Christ. Matthew 12 says that Jesus Christ, pointing towards the cross, has bound the strong man of Satan, and he's now, gets his awesome, he's plundering his house. He's taking back what is rightfully his. Jesus says, Jesus promises that he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? And if you believe that, listen, when he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples, guess what? We can go with courageous faith. Let me make it clear. On this rescue mission, we are not primarily fighting the world. We are fighting for those in the world, held captive 
to sin and death. Some of us just love to fight, but we're not fighting for those we love. One more quote. Faramir, it's Boromir's brother. Also, this is the last Lord of the Ring quote. Maybe. He says, war must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all, but I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We must have courageous faith because he has sent us out into this ruthless world against a ruthless enemy. But he sent us on a global rescue mission in the midst of this spiritual war. And here's what that means, church. We need to take risks. We need to take risks. We need to sacrifice for this mission. We need to sacrifice our time, our treasure, our talents. We may even have to sacrifice our lives if it comes down to it, but it is worth the cost. It's worth the cost, listen, to get those we love. We will never tell people how much Jesus loves them until we stop caring about how much people like us. We are people, and as part of human nature, we're obsessed with what people think of us. I just want people to like me. Did you know that that may be the, the number one thing preventing you from telling them how much Jesus loves them? We need to be willing, listen, to not care at all what the world thinks about us just so long as they know what Jesus has done for them. You see, ultimately... We do this because we love the world, but more than that, listen, we do it for the one we love. We do it for a righteous king. It's interesting here that the climactic event of Abram's courageous faith is not his heroic action to save Lot, but his humble adoration of his God. It says, after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Laomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. The word king appears in this passage 28 times. 
there's no doubt that God is making a statement by doing that. And I think the statement is fairly simple. It's simply this. All these mighty kings in and around the land are not the true kings of the land. Abram, though he's lacking the title king, is in fact a greater king. And even in this passage, we see a greater king than Abram who shows up here by the name of Melchizedek. But this final scene, listen, is ultimately intended to point us toward the king of kings. The setting is the Valley of Shava, the, the king's valley as it's called. It's only a, a brief distance from Jerusalem. And there, two kings greet Abram and his warriors the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, and they're intended to present another contrast. We see here that God is the, the primary focus of this meeting in three ways that, listen, I think forge courageous faith for both Abram and for us today. First, God gives the victory. This is what is being both recognized and celebrated by Abram and by Melchizedek. The king of Sodom viewed Abram's victory as a human feat. Do you notice that? But the king of Salem actually sees what's really happened. It is a divine victory that has been accomplished. This, this king, King Melchizedek, he kind of pops onto the scene out of nowhere, but he holds incredible biblical significance as we saw in Psalm 110. David picks up on this, and then if you know your New Testament, you know that the author of Hebrews in both chapter 5 and 7 alludes to Melchizedek, and actually there's a whole chapter, chapter 7, devoted to him. His name literally means king of righteousness. He is king of Salem, the text tells us, which literally translated means king of peace. Salem is the ancient word for Jerusalem. So here we have in the ancient world, before the establishment of God's people in the, in the land, we have the king of righteousness who rules as the king of peace in God's holy city. He brings out in verse 18 a bread and wine which would be used in the feast of Israel in their Passover meal. But the picture here is this is a royal feast. There's no doubt. Listen, the people who are hearing this or reading this for the first time, they already had in their mind the Exodus event. There is no doubt that they would have looked at the bread and the wine and thought instantly of God's rescuing work in the Passover where God had delivered his people out of Egypt by taking that precious lamb, the innocent lamb, by slaughtering it and painting the doorposts of their house with its blood. And everybody who was in the house would be spared, where God would pass over, his wrath would pass over, the angel of death would pass over, God would redeem his people. And we know that this is pointing us all the way to the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate here today. The Lord's Supper represents the ultimate rescue from death, a celebration of a royal feast. And everything done here from the food to the tithe is an acknowledgement here that God gives the victory and what Abram is saying is this, I will worship God, the one who has given victory. I will praise his name for all that's been accomplished. 
Secondly, we see that God grants the blessing. You'll notice that Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, he actually blessed Abram by God most high. Making note that it was God most high who has delivered him from his enemies. He says that this God, Yahweh God, is the possessor of heaven and earth. And, and here's what the text is telling us, that Abram and Melchizedek, they worship the same God. We're also told that he is a priest, which is unusual. There are no priest kings of this, in this day. This seems to be unique and, and something, again, that David picks up on that will later become relevant for the Messiah. But here is a priest king of the Most High God who is able to mediate God's blessing to Abram, who will then in turn mediate God's blessing to the nations. Melchizedek in this passage, listen, is greater than any other earthly king, and that is signified and recognized by the tithe that Abram gives. Abram recognizes Melchizedek as his superior. And giving that tithe is also a recognition of the blessing that comes from the hand of God. You know that every time we give, you know, we talk about worshiping the Lord through our giving. Every time we give to the Lord, every time the nation of Israel was called to give to the Lord, it was signifying that every good thing they have comes from the hand of our good God. It was not only a recognition of what God has provided, it was also a recognition that God must continue to provide. And then comes this king in verse 21, the king of Sodom, this cowardly king who, who escapes with his life. And notice that his words, the first words out of his mouth are, give me. It's filled with selfishness and greed. Listen, sometimes, listen, this is an important moment for Abram. Sometimes the greatest test of your faith is not what happens in your failure, it's what happens in your success. And courageous faith looks beyond the riches of this world to the greater blessings that God has in store. Abram wanted to receive everything from God and not take so much as a thread or a sandal strap from the king of Sodom. And his refusal to, look, to accept this plunder from the king of Sodom, it demonstrates his continual reliance upon God to provide the blessing. I will wait on God. I will receive from God. I only want what God wants from me. Why? So that in everything, lastly, listen, God gets the glory. And this is what forges courageous faith. It's driven by a passion for the glory of the King of Kings. I don't want anything that is yours. He tells us why. Why? Lest you say, I have made Abram rich. He wanted it clear to everyone who had made him rich. He didn't want to give not a, a single ounce, not a single drop of glory to the king of Sodom. He didn't deserve any of it. He wanted all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise to go to King Jesus who provided all the victory and all the blessings. That's it. I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything from the world. I want everything from my king. 
And if Abram accepts this plunder, this arrogant king of Sodom would believe that he, not the Lord, has made him rich. He would get the glory and the vic- for the victory and the spoils, not God. And I would just say this lastly. This is why, listen, we must seek to have nothing to do with the king of Sodom. All he wants to do is steal glory from God. We must keep our knees bowed to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All right, this one's for free. Lord of the Rings quote, not on the screen. Listen, this is Faramir, just in case. He says, praise from the praiseworthy is beyond all rewards. Let me say that again. Listen to this. Praise from the praiseworthy is beyond all rewards. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. You can have all the praise, all of the possessions, all the power of this world, but if you do not have the praise of the praiseworthy, you have nothing in the end. Which is why, church, we're waiting to hear the words, aren't we? We're running this race. We're fighting this fight. We're waging this war. Not so that the world can give us a pat on the back and say, look what you did, but so that we can stand before our righteous king one day and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's it. Melchizedek, as Hebrews 7 says, points us toward Jesus. A greater priest king. You can read Hebrews chapter 7 later today and see how how Melchizedek is pointing us in a way to Jesus. He's the greater priest king who's going to lead us into a new order. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 talks about him being this priest king. And it reminds us, listen, that that those Levitical priests under the Levitical law, that they can make nothing perfect. Day after day, they had to offer sacrifices. But Jesus is this different kind of priest, and he's this different kind of king. In in chapter 7, verse 25, he says this. He always, speaking of Jesus, lives to make intercession. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus offered himself up, and in this narrative we get a, a, kernel, a kernel form of God's ultimate saving work in Jesus Christ, the greater priest king after the order of Melchizedek who saves us to the uttermost. This is the righteous king who gives the ultimate victory, who grants the fullness of blessing, and who forever gets all the glory. And it's interesting because this king, too, comes out to us and spreads a banquet before us. And he comes out in the same way, right? Jesus, our king, he comes to us with bread and wine also. And that's what we read about on that last supper and the Passover meal as Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. He broke the bread and he told them that this was actually pointing towards his body which was broken for them. 
And he took the cup and he told them, this cup is symbolic of my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and the new covenant that I am establishing with you. And it's fitting that we celebrate that today together. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. What we celebrate here in communion, in these elements, it symbolizes the most intimate communion with God. The bread is the symbol of life. We read that in John chapter 6. God is actually the source of life. Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. Wine in the ancient world was a symbol of joy and God's blessing. And it reminds us, listen, that God is the, the source of all of our joy, of our greatest joy, and the joy that comes from the forgiveness of our sins and entering into a new covenant with him. They symbolize the substance of our faith. They symbolize King Jesus and what he did to rescue and redeem us. They remind us that our king left the comforts of heaven, came on a rescue mission for us so that he could save his children and that we might in turn worship him, our righteous king, forever and ever. I want to encourage you just to take a moment before the Lord to bow your head in silence, to reflect on the gift of God's grace in the gospel, to confess your sin and to rejoice in the forgiveness that he provides through Christ. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful and loving God. who rescues undeserving sinners so that we might know you in the fullness of your presence, that we might delight in your glory and your goodness and your grace, that we might sing your praises forever and ever. Thank you that what we hold in our hands reminds us of all these things. Thank you that it reminds us of the cost of our salvation, that, Lord, not only were you willing to come for us, you were willing to die for us. Thank you that you are our great priest king who stands right now in the presence of the Father who ever lives to make intercession for the saints. God, that right now, regardless of where we've been in our sin, regardless of what we've done even this very day, our Savior, He intercedes on our behalf. He declares His righteousness for us. We praise You that, that our faith, Lord, is not about what we can do, but only about what you have done. Thank you for giving your life for ours, for being our perfect substitute. Thank you for dying the death that we deserved, for shedding your blood that we might have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. 
And we pray now that you would cement these truths once more in our heart, that you might, God, produce faith in some, even in this very moment, that you might renew and reestablish faith. Lord, that you would strengthen all of our faith in our King Jesus. Do that, we pray now, as we celebrate this together. In Jesus' name, amen.